Well, good morning. I hope you're ready to uh, dig into the book of James. We're going to begin a new series that will take us through the end of this year. And we'll start with James chapter 1 today. Um, At the same time, today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And so we are going to highlight that. And uh, you'll see after we get into James for just a few minutes how that ties in and the resources that are on your table, uh, which are for you to take home with you. Uh, You'll see how those tie in as well. So if you'll turn in your Bibles or your attention to the screen as we go to uh, the book of James. James was written most likely by James, the brother of Jesus. And uh, James was not a believer, as far as we can tell, growing up. In fact, the Bible kind of indicates that Jesus' family, his brothers and sisters, did not believe that he was the Messiah. And so it was sometime afterwards, after Jesus' ministry, after his death, burial, and resurrection, that uh, James and also Jude, both of which wrote a book of the Bible, um, became believers and then have, through God and the Holy Spirit, been able to encourage us throughout all of these uh, years since then. Uh, James became a, a leader in the early church in Jerusalem and became very important in the early uh, growth of the church. So just from that alone, and, and that's background, you have to go search some scriptures and then read some background material to, to know that, but um, that should encourage us on a couple of notes, and that's that um, even though people may not be responding to Christ today, you don't really know what's going on inside, and so we need to keep praying for them and keep living the Jesus lifestyle in front of them. Um, This is an example, Jude and James both. It was not until after Jesus was off the face of the earth, and think about it, Jesus was God. So, If they didn't listen and believe when he was there, um, how much more so with us, right? So we need the patience and endurance that we're going to see here in just a moment. So in James chapter 1, verse number 1, we read, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes and the dispersion or diaspora, uh, greetings. So here we see, just in the first verse of James... A couple of important things that we need to realize before we can even get too far into the book of James. I'll I'll tell you up front that the book of James is about maturity. It's about you growing as a Christian to become the person God wants you to be. To become completely mature and lacking nothing so you can do what God calls you to do. And in this first verse, we see that, that James has identified himself as a slave. Slave or a bondservant. Other translations might say a bondservant. So the idea here is that James has, has willingly submitted himself to a master. That master being the Lord, Lord meaning master, Jesus Christ. And that's all the more significant when you realize what I just told you a minute ago, that, that James, as his brother, was an unbeliever while Jesus was on the earth doing his ministry. And so... James has submitted himself to be the slave or bondservant of God and of Jesus. And so when we begin to understand this, one of the things we have to realize is if your life is going to end up where Jesus wants it to end up, the first thing you've got to do is surrender. You've got to submit yourself to God, that he's your master, that he's your Lord. And what that means is that your will has to be replaced with his will. It means that he's got to be the one calling the shots. Otherwise, he's not really 
the Lord and the Master. It means that his priorities need to become your priorities. It means, means that his people need to become your people. And who are his people? Who are God's people? The Christians, yes, the Christians, the church, the family of God, okay? That becomes your people, okay? There's no more Jew and Gentile, male and female. There's, there's no more all this other stuff. It's you're part of the family of God. You are dumped in, you're adopted in, you're brought in, you're grafted in, and now you are brothers and sisters if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You're not going to be able to follow through with what James commands us to do in this letter until you first surrender yourself to God. There's, there's no way. James is filled with commands that we are supposed to follow. Uh, the book of James is often called the wisdom book of the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the wisdoms, uh, wisdom books are, are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. All right? um, Proverbs, many people you know, love Proverbs. You can, you can read a proverb every day. Uh, the Proverbs give very practical, life-oriented wisdom for how to live your life. Well, James is like that for the New Testament. It's a short little book, five chapters. And it shows us how to live our life in many different aspects. But he starts out with this idea. Um, many people just skip right through this. You know, this is like the salutation, the greeting. It's James, it's who it's from, who it's to. Um, but when he throws words in there like, I'm a slave, we need to stop and ask ourselves if we, you know, have considered that ourselves. A slave has given up his rights. And, and we don't like that term. I've mentioned this before. It's because we're tainted by what happened in America. And we really need to, to separate the idea of the American um, and, and the African slavery that occurred with what's going on in the first century and prior to that. It's not the same thing. Um, there is some overlap, but it's not the same thing. I want you to think kind of an idea of, of this. Pretend, though, that you were on the slave market, all right? And so you were there being offered for sale. And a man came up, and he outbid everybody. So he paid more than anybody else was willing to pay to get you. So he hands over his money, they give him his bill of sale, and then you are given to him. And as he walks away from that platform where he just purchased you, he turns around, he looks at you, and he says, you are now a free man. You can go and do whatever you want. What would be your response to that? What would be your level of appreciation for that? It's often told, the story is often repeated, that in this illustration that um, the man then, this has actually happened in, in history, that the man would then turn and he, he fell down at the ground and he said, I will serve you the rest of my life. Now why would that be his response? Because he has just seen something that he has before not known. He has seen the, the great graciousness of a man shown to him, willing to free him. And think about it. If this man who did not know him was willing to pay more than anybody else and then set him free, well, what kind of master must this man be? A generous one, a gracious one, a loving one. And that being the case, he's willing to what? Serve him for the rest of his life. If you think about it, we pretend that we don't serve anybody or we're not slaves to anybody, but it's just a lie. See, in American culture, most of us work for somebody. We're employed by somebody. 
And so we have masters. In a sense, we are in servitude, or I don't know if you want to go this far, but in slavery in a sense. And so if, if you don't perform, what happens? You get fired. You're gone. All right? And so you have this idea where even in our own culture, if you've been employed very long, speaking mainly to the adults now, you've experienced gracious bosses and not so gracious bosses. And so if any of you have ever been fired, which I've been fired, so I know what that's like as well. And so you've got to kind of put that in the picture of who is it that you want to serve. And James is saying, I give it to Jesus. I'm willing to serve Jesus. I'm willing to let him be my boss. <clears throat> James continues, and he says he's writing to the 12 tribes and the dispersion. They've been scattered all over. And so this was written just shortly after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, maybe their 50s even. And he's saying there's, people have been scattered all over the place. Why? Well, there's this persecution going on. The early Christians are being persecuted, and they're being scattered. And as they're being scattered, they would write these letters. And these letters were, were then sent, and they would be passed along from church to church in different places. And Christians would get them, and they would read them and share them with each other. And that's what James is doing. And he's doing this because he wants to build up the church. He wants to encourage the brothers and sisters that they would follow after Christ and that they would not give up. I don't know what problems you're facing in your life today, but whatever those problems are, James is coming alongside you and he's saying, listen, submit yourself first to God. And then as we continue, you'll see he's going to say, let's see what God's going to do about that and what God is actually trying to do in your own life. And what is going to be your response to that? Because you do get to choose what your response is going to be to that. So this idea of slaves of Christ that we've been talking about, let me throw out just another idea to you that throughout the Old Testament, this word is used okay, in another sense, in the sense of a messenger or servant of God. Okay? Now again, uh, there's this dual meaning that they're a slave, and so they submit themselves to the master. They don't have a will of their own. They do the will of the master. But throughout the Bible, you'll see that this word is used of people like Moses and Joshua, who are servants or bond slaves of God. And so there's also a level where this is not um, always some low-level person in a corner. Moses is very well revered. Moses is like one of the highlight men in the scriptures. And he is one of God's servants or slaves. In Exodus 21, verses 5 through 6, you see that a slave is offered freedom from his master. And if he chooses to stay, which means some of them did. And again, why would they stay? Why would they stay with him? What's that? I can't hear you. Well, they might not have had anywhere else to go, but would you stay with a bad master even if you had nowhere else to go? No, you'd leave. You'd find somewhere, right? A rock cave is better if he's a bad master. Why would they stay? They would only stay if he was what kind of a master? A kind and loving master. That's why they would stay. And so then if they would, they marked them. Take them over to the doorpost, and they were driving all in their ear. And they would pierce their ear, and that was a sign that they were permanently had submitted themselves to be the slave of this man. And everybody would know. Now, you and I have a choice. Do we submit ourselves? Because you have a choice on it. 
You know, you don't get an earring from God, you know, when you become a Christian. But he does ask us to do what? Get baptized and tell the world, right? He does ask us to live as a light to show who we actually follow, to change our lives. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil, and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. As God's slaves live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a way to conceal evil. So as God's slaves, okay, there's that phrase again. What does he say? He says, live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a way to conceal evil. You see, if you get in trouble for doing evil, well, that's on you. But here he's saying, listen, you've got freedom, all right, but you're a God's slave. That's a paradox. How can you be a slave and free at the same time? Because it's in the Lord. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 18. He says, having been liberated from sin, you became enslaved. So you're freed from sin, but you become a slave to what? Righteousness. Righteousness. And so God is your master, who is the only right one and the righteous king, becomes your master, and you become a slave that begins to mimic and carry out and have the characteristics of your master. A son looks like his father. A student becomes like his teacher. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 22, it says, For he who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, he who is called as a freeman is Christ's slave. Now here he's saying two things. He's, he's saying that if you were a slave in the first century in the Roman Empire, okay, but you become a believer, well, you're a freedman. You see, this is an idea that we, we really struggle with because we are so tied down to the constraints of our culture and our society. And we think that, you know, if you have a horrible boss and, and a bad employer and a bad workplace, that that, like, runs our life. And here's the truth, all right? And I struggle with this just like you struggle with this, all right? The truth is that the Bible says that's not true because in Christ we've been freed, and so it doesn't matter how horrible our current situation is, that's not how we have to live. Because we have something greater going on inside of us and greater that we're looking forward to. And so we don't have to be weighed down by that. That's, how, that's why people are able, in the worst situations possible, to have joy. I'll show you a video in a little bit. But we, the most spoiled people are the people who are least able to demonstrate joy. I mean, if, if you've been on a mission trip ever, you know that what I just said is true. Um, we are the most spoiled people pretty much in the world, and we are the least joyful people in the world to, to some extent. I mean, go somewhere else, and you'll, you'll see. I'm telling the truth. Um, we have everything. So he's saying your, your physical, outward, cultural, whatever situation doesn't dictate how you live your life. On the flip side, he says, if you call as a free man, you're Christ's slave. So here's the flip side. Oh, yeah, I'm free. So us here in America, yeah, we're free, right? And he says, oh, but you're not now because you're Christ's slave. See, so when you realize this, slavery or not slavery, in this context, doesn't really matter. Because either way, we all have a what? We all have a master. And that master is God. So back to James. 
Okay, James says he's a slave of Christ. All right? In verse 2 and 4, 2 through 4, he continues on, and he says this. Okay? He says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, but endurance must do its complete work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. The end of that verse there, lacking nothing. This is the key for you to understand the book of James. The book of James is about you growing in maturity so that you lack nothing. And he's going to help you, if you listen to him, learn how to become a complete, mature Christian. And so when we look at these verses here, in James, the first chapter, in, in verses 2 through 4, I want to look at the phrase, he says, consider it a great joy. Consider it a great joy. Consider what a great joy. Well, he, can, he said when you go through various trials. So already we're talking about trials and tribulations, sufferings, persecutions, all these different things, which we don't like. You don't sign up for it, right? Who wants to be mocked at school? Who wants to be bullied at school, right? Who wants a teacher that always is, is uh, busting on them, right? Who wants a horrible home life? Who, who wants all these bad things in life? Who wants persecution? But James says this. He says, consider it a great joy. What? Is he on drugs? How, how do you do this? Consider it a great joy. Or consider it entirely joy is another way of translating it. This is very unique. This is counterintuitive to our nature. It's counterintuitive. It's opposite of our culture. This is not how we think. See, this is where when Christians grasp this idea that they go completely against the culture because the culture does not think this way. How do you, how do, you do this, and, and why is he saying that we should do this? So the trials that are going to come in your life, we've got to understand that you can respond to them in, in one of two ways. You can respond, as James is saying, consider it a great joy. Or you can respond, as we often do, and consider it a great nuisance, or worse, a, a great interruption in our life, a great negative, a great whatever. But James is saying, consider it a great joy. Now, what's joy? It's more than happiness. It's inside you. It's deep-seated. All right? it's, it's based on the security and the knowledge of, of God and it's having that salvation with Jesus. It's about knowing that in the future where you're going to be, you're going to be with God and knowing that God's doing a work in you and through you and, and even through the, the messed up world and that one day he's going to put it all right again. Now, let me just illustrate something. <clears throat> if you were in a room with a guy, okay, and he was interrogating you, all right, and, and he, he was even beating you, and, and he was just saying all sorts of bad things about you, and he was threatening you, and he was threatening your family, and he was saying you were never going to get out. But if you knew that on the other side of the door was a guy that was going to come in and destroy this guy in five more minutes, how would you be inside? You'd be relieved. Why? Because you know someone's coming to save you in five minutes, right? <clears throat> See, our perspective and how we think changes everything. 
And what happens is we forget what God says he's doing and going to do in the midst of these chaotic situations in our life. Now, the truth of the matter is, unless God specifically came to you and said he's coming in five minutes, someone may or may not come in five minutes. But the point is this. Your perspective is based on how you're thinking and what you know about God. And so if you don't understand that, okay, that's why we have messed up thinking. Our viewpoint is wrong. Our worldview, as they, they call it sometimes, is improper. It's not correct. And so he says, consider it a great joy when you have all these diverse types of trials and tribulations and temptations or whatever else comes into your life. Consider it joy. Why? Because what God is doing is he is putting stuff in your life. He's allowing stuff in your life so that you can become mature. How many of you want to stay a baby all your life? One of you. Babies are how we start off. If you're 30 and still wearing diapers, then there's a what? There's a problem. Okay? And unfortunately, there are some people that are in that situation, right? But that's because there's a problem. Something did not develop the way it was supposed to over time. Those people need our compassion and care, right? But that's not the way it's supposed to be. What's supposed to happen? You're supposed to grow mature to a point where you're not in diapers anymore, right? Babies wear diapers, right? So if at 30 you're still wearing diapers, everybody knows there's a problem. The problem is in Christianity, we don't recognize that. Or we ignore it. We have all these people that have been Christians for months and years, and they're still baby Christians. We still can't deal with the simplest things that come our way. We still can't deal with people that don't like us. We still can't deal with people that get mad at us. We still can't deal with people that are not Christian and think we're stupid. We still can't deal with people that make fun of us. We can't deal with all these things, which are everyday part of normal life. And James is saying, consider it great what? Joy. So how many of you get up in the morning and say, yeah, today I get to go to school and that kid's going to make fun of me again today? None of you, right? But James is saying, consider it great joy. Why is it great joy? So let's go back to our illustration. If you knew in five minutes that God's going to come through that door, then while, while you're in that little cell and, and that other man is being mean to you and maybe even slapping you around, Inside, aren't you kind of smiling? Yeah. yeah. Maybe even on your face you're smiling. And he's like, what are you smiling? That might even make him matter. But the reason you're smiling is because you know in five minutes someone's coming in and going to take care of that old boy. So you could put up with it for five minutes, right? Here's what James is saying. This is why you can have joy and put up with it. Because God is going to turn you from a baby to a dynamic warrior for Jesus Christ. Dirty, sinful, little whatever into a beautiful work of art and a masterpiece. Now, which do you want to be? Do you know what it takes to make a diamond? A lot of pressure. Do you want to go through the pressure to become the diamond, or you want to stay cold? To be pure gold, what has to happen? They have to take it, and they put it in the fire, and they heat it up to very high temperatures to get rid of the garbage. Do you want to stay dirty gold 
or do you want to be pure gold? Then you've got to go through the refiner's fire. You've got to be burned. You've got to go through pressure. You've got to have the junk squeezed out of your life. So we have this idea that other people are always the problem. See, you made me mad, you upset me, and you didn't do it right. But really, the problem is all where? It's in me. Now, maybe you did do it wrong, but my response is all from me. My response isn't because you did it right or wrong. My response comes from whether or not I have the character of Christ. It comes from whether or not I am a baby or a grown-up in the faith. And what James wants to do is he wants to move you from being a baby to a grown-up in the faith. But that means you've got to go through the fire. If you get out of the fire, what will you never become? Pure and grown-up in the faith, which means you will remain a what? A baby your whole life. Now, let me tell you another way that this usually works. If you avoid one situation that God puts you in, he's probably going to put you in the same situation again. And here's why. He's trying to show you an area of your life that needs to be fixed. And the reason he's showing you is so you can do what? Fix it. And if you refuse, if you short-circuit the plan, then what's he going to do? He's going to put you back in there because what's his goal? To purify you, to make you mature, complete, lacking nothing. So he's going to put you right back in there. Now, it might not look identical, but he's going to be working on the same thing. So if you have a patience problem, if you get angry all the time, okay, so you're easily angered, right? So guess what God's probably going to do? He's going to put people around you that are going to annoy you all the time. Why? So you can learn to deal with them and have patience. Patience. The greatest patience builder of my life, I think, was the seven and a half years, give or take, that I drove a school bus. I've taught in the classroom, and I've driven a school bus. And I've always said that driving a school bus is like taking your class of 30 kids, putting them on wheels, turning your back to them, and then trying to navigate the road. You're supposed to not get in an accident, not speed, get where you need to go on time, drop off every kid, don't miss any kid, make sure there's no fights, make sure they're in their seats, and don't hit any cars, I guess, too. So, all of that, right, is what you're supposed to do. And answer the radio when the office calls. So, crazy kids, I had fights once or twice, I grew so that I pretty much could ignore them. So they'd be taught, I don't know what they were talking about. I could, I could just tune them out. And so if you're ever at, yelling at me and I don't hear you, I probably just tuned you out. All right, I learned how to do that pretty good. So um, sometimes that's not good though, right? Anyways, my point is this, patience, okay? If I had not had that seven years on the school bus, when I took my first job as a Christian teacher, I never would have lasted, never. I was a new teacher, they knew it, and I was told later that they did something to me that like no other 
would ever have accepted. So they took all these kids, they took two different classes, they combined them all together. I had almost 40 kids, middle school kids, all in the same class, and I'd never taught before. I didn't know what I was doing. So it was total chaos and craziness for quite a while. What, what did God do? God works in our lives to get rid of the junk, and that's what James is trying to get us to understand. All right, y'all with me so far? All right, and so that's where he says, consider it great joy. We'll come back to this, okay, because the whole letter is based on this. Then he says, my brothers, okay, just a couple of quick comments. And again, we've got to change how we think on this. I've said this before, but we need to drill down into it this morning. My brothers is what kind of term? It's a family term. My brothers is family, okay, and again, here is where we don't get this in American Christianity. When you become a believer, you become part of my family. More technically accurate, you become part of God's family, of which I'm also a part of. And that makes you my what? My brother or my sister. Okay? Now, if we don't get this, we, we won't get the rest. And it's why we don't have compassion, we don't care, it's why we don't even know what's going on in the rest of the world, and it's why when we do know, we don't really care. It's kind of why in the movie Hotel Rwanda, when they finally got the video footage out of the massacre going on, and the guy there says, now they'll care, right? Now the people in the West, now the Americans, they'll do something, right? And the other guy looked back at him and said, no, they'll say, my goodness, that's horrible, and they'll go back to eating their steak dinner. And that is the shameful response that we have to what goes on. Now, I get that it's overwhelming, especially now when you get so much news from the whole world. What do you do about all these things? But, my brothers, he says, it's a family term. It was used in the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, for members of the same community, and whether or not they were the same immediate family. Jesus, when you look at the Gospels, he changed what was considered family. Not based on biology, biological bloodline, but instead based on spiritual bloodlines. One day he was there teaching, and some of his family came. They said, hey, your, your family's here, your brothers and sisters, your mom's here. And he said, who's, who's my family? Who's my brothers and sisters? Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven. In other words, you follow God, your family. You don't, you're not. In James, this word describes believers that are in the family of God, just like in Matthew 23, verse 8, Matthew 25, 40, Acts 9, 30, etc., so it's basically equivalent to what we say is, is Christians or a brother in Christ, etc. Same thing. So James is saying here, listen, family, listen, church family, this is how it's supposed to be. This is how we need to respond. Now, look at 1 Corinthians 12, 26. A year or so ago, we, we talked about the, the whole body image. In 1 Corinthians 12, 26, he says, If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. All right, now let's just break this down and make this real for a minute, okay? So if I'm walking here, and all of a sudden, okay, I drop a 25-pound dumbbell on my foot, 
What's my response going to be? That's right. My mouth, okay, is going to respond. It's going to say, ow, or something else. Less nice, okay? Then what else is going to happen? I'm probably going to hop, okay? Maybe on my other foot. So now my other foot is reacting to what happened to this foot. What else might I do? Cry. I might cry, so now my eyes are responding. What else? Ask for help. I might ask for help. What else? I might put ice on it. That's my hands doing something. My hands might also just be going like this or flailing like a bird. I don't know. Okay? What else might I be doing? What's that? I would be in pain. My whole body is feeling the pain that just happened. Why is my whole body in pain when only my foot got attacked? It's all together? Is that what you said? Yeah. And... Something about that? Yeah. So it's all together. All right? What is Paul saying? Paul's saying in Corinthians, if one member suffers, all the members suffer. If one part of the body suffers, all the parts suffer. Okay? When you hit your foot, when you stub your toe, if you drop 20 pounds on your foot, okay, it's not just your foot. So how come... When something happens to another Christian, we don't feel it. How come when something happens to another believer, well, if we're not part of the body, then that needs to be fixed. And that's an honest appraisal of the situation. So we go back to verse 1. And James says he's a what of God? The slave of God. So if we're not part of the body, the first step is to go back to verse 1, become part of the body by surrendering ourselves, submitting ourselves, and becoming a slave of God, right? What about people who genuinely are a part of the body, but the truth is we don't feel it? We've got a problem, don't we? If Stanley got hit by a bus... Would you feel it? No. You wouldn't feel it. Why not? Well, what does Paul say? Paul says he is part of your body if you're a follower of Jesus. See, this is where the rubber meets the road, guys. This is where, some of you are thinking I'm being crazy right now, but see, this is where... The reality of being part of a family in the body is all about. If something happened to somebody in your, your family at home, something bad, would you feel it? Would you respond? Would you do something about it? But if Stanley got hit by a bus, you wouldn't feel it? You wouldn't respond? You wouldn't do something about it? Your mouth wouldn't say anything? Your hands wouldn't do anything? Your feet wouldn't do anything? See, this, when I say that we have to change our thinking and our worldview, this is what I'm talking about. When Christians in Syria get bombed and get killed, and we don't have a response, we don't feel anything, we got a problem because... Paul says, Jesus says, it's the body. Look at Galatians 6.1. Another context, still the Apostle Paul. 
He's talking about burdens. He's talking about sin. He's talking about helping each other out. He says, brothers, there's that word again. If someone is caught in a wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves, so you are also are not tempted. Brothers, another person, restore them. This is a different context. This is somebody decided to sin. Like, Stanley didn't get hit by a truck this time. He decided to go sin. Ah, no big deal. It's just Stanley. Let him sin if he wants to. Is that what he says? No! Stanley's thin- sinning, you should feel what? Pain. Pain, sorrow, grief, compassion. And you should go get him. Matthew 18. Bring him back. Ephesians 5, 23. The husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. So let's get this straight. When you drop 25 pounds on your toe, your mouth says something. So Stanley gets hit by a bus. The mouth says something, and the mouth is from the head. And who is the head? God. Jesus is the head. He's not just saying, ouch. He's saying, go help the boy. So if it's not Stanley, if it's a Christian brother or sister in Syria or Iraq or Iran or Afghanistan, is the head saying something? Yes. Yes. And who's the head? Jesus. And who's the body parts? Us. So the head's saying something. Are we listening? Yes. And how do you feel now? Yeah. You're missing an arm, right? Yeah, the rest of the body knows, right? Exactly. Look at this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, In a Christian community, everything depends upon whether each individual is an indispensable link in a chain. See, if you don't think that Stanley is indispensable, you're like, yeah, no big deal. He's, he's gone. That's fine. We'll replace him. No, no, no. Everything depends upon whether each individual is an indispensable link in the chain. Only when even the smallest link is securely interlocked is the chain unbreakable. Every Christian community must realize that not only do the weak need the strong, but also the strong cannot exist without the weak because we're all part of the same body. What's the weakest part in your body? Your eyes? Are you kidding me? My eyes are like the last thing I would want gone. What's the weakest part of your body? Your hair? Maybe so. I wouldn't have thought that. It might be. Like, I could go without my hair, I guess, right? But, 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 your hair does incredibly important things. Your hair helps keep you warm. Some of you need some more, because I can see you're very cold. Your hair helps keep you clean. Your hair filters stuff out of your nose. Okay. Your hair does all sorts of things. So if you had no hair, you actually would have some problems. Are you with me? Your hair is actually, there's hairs in your your ear. That's related to your hearing. Hair has so many different functions. So you might think it's the weakest part. You don't really need it, right? Get rid of all your hair and see what happens. Yes, you need your eyes. Yeah, that's the last thing I would want gone. I want to be able to see, bro. Come on. So the weakest thing. You think you don't need it. They used to think you don't need your little toe. They found out it actually helps you balance. Like, what's that there for? We don't need it. Chop them off. No, it's there for a reason. It didn't just evolve. God put it there. 
You have it for balancing and for whatever other reasons, which maybe we don't know about. All right? So the weakest link, Bonhoeffer is saying, yes, you might think that person you could do without them. But God says otherwise. We need all people in the body together. And we need to feel their pain. We need to hear what they're saying. So then he says, whenever you face trials of many kinds, these trials, okay? Now, this verse is not restricted to just persecution, but because of International Day of Prayer today, we are going to focus specifically on persecution. The other aspects of trials will come up as we go through the letter of James. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 to 15, Jesus says, those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed. He says the kingdom of heaven is theirs. He says, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. He said, be glad and rejoice. There's our rejoice again, because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. You're the salt. You're the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather they put it on a lampstand and it gives light for all who are in the house. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying in, in the Sermon on the Mount, okay, in the Beatitudes section, Matthew chapter 5, there's actually a lot of parallels between the Sermon on the Mount and um, James' writing. And so he's saying here that, listen, you, you need to understand, when you become a follower, when you become a slave, when you become a servant of the Most High God, everybody is not going to be so excited about it for you. They're going to persecute you. And he says, do what? Rejoice. He says what James says. Consider it a great joy. You are in the company of, not angels, but prophets, priests, who were persecuted for following after God. What happened to the prophets? They pretty much all got what? Killed. Would you want the job? Who wants to sign up to be Jeremiah? You want to be Isaiah? Isaiah probably sawed in half by being stuck inside a log. Think about that one. I hope the blade was sharp. Anyway, Jeremiah preached for 40 years and nobody listened to him. Thrown in a dungeon, thrown in a birdcage. The prophets. What? Yeah, like a big birdcage stuck up in the sky. If they want to, yeah. It's like a jail in the sky. Right? Yeah. All right. So these trials, these persecutions, Matthew chapter 5, um, verse 10, again, what, is it, what does he say? He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So if you want the kingdom of heaven, what's he saying that you've got to sign up for? That's right, be persecuted. Matthew 5, verse 44 and 45, he says, I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So now not only do you need to be persecuted, but you need to pray for the people that persecute you, because he wants them in the kingdom too. Yeah. Not yet, but it's coming. Just hold on. The other reason there's not a whole lot is because we're too chicken to talk. You talk about Jesus a bit more and see what happens. Right? But things are changing. It's starting to come this way. Acts chapter 5, verse 41. It says this. It says, Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be dishonored on behalf of the name. So you're like, Kevin, whoever did this? Well, in the book of Acts, the first Christians actually rejoiced because they got persecuted. 
And you're like, well, they're smoking something. Well, I don't know. I don't think they were actually. But it says that they rejoiced. This fits with everything that Jesus said. This fits with what James says. He says, count it a great joy. Jesus said, rejoice about it. It's a blessing. Blessing in disguise. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy or allowed by God to suffer for or with Christ. Persecution against a part of the body is persecution against the whole body. That's something that we, we were way too individualized in America. We have almost no concept of. So when a Christian, or, which is part of the body, is persecuted, the head, who's the head? Jesus. He suffers too. And therefore, so should we, who are the rest of the body. Truth be told, we don't even know normally that a part of the body is suffering. And when we do, we don't connect it with the head and the rest of the body. But Jesus did. In Acts 9, 4, <clears throat> Jesus shows up. The apostle Paul, formerly known as Saul, he's persecuting the Christians. And what does Jesus say? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting, what's the next word? Me. So Jesus is saying that when you persecute another Christian, you're persecuting who? Him. Him. Why? Because it's one body. If I take a hammer and beat your hand, am I beating your body? Yes. Because your body's part of, I mean, your hand's part of your body. So if a believer is being beaten for being a Christian, then the whole body should know and respond. 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes. So should you expect persecution? Yes. Yeah, don't be surprised. Fiery ordeal. Remember what fire, why? Fire purifies, right? Think about it. To test you, to test you, what's the test for? You're supposed to pass the test. Some of you think your teachers don't want you to, but that's not actually true. You're supposed to pass the test, and the test proves that you learned and are ready. So you're supposed to go through the fire and come out on the other side as pure gold, showing that you actually have grown, and you're no longer a baby. baby. Okay? So if something unusual were happening to you. So don't act like it's something unusual, like, oh, this is all out of the ordinary. Why is this happening to me? <clears throat> don't be surprised, he says. In Philippians 3.10, we read this. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. Now, a couple years ago, this, this verse really hit me. We, we know a lot in Philippians. We have all these verses we memorize. And Paul says here that he wants to, to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, but the next phrase is, the key here, the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. Paul says he wants to know about, he wants to participate in the sufferings of Christ. Now, what does that mean? You get up on the cross and act like Jesus and get killed? No, the first part's not right. You don't get up on the cross. The last part might be right. You might get killed. What's the sufferings of Christ? How does Christ suffer today? Have you ever thought about this? How does Christ, who's in heaven, suffer today? When his body is persecuted, because he is the what of the body? The head. When his body is persecuted, 
it is suffering. And when the body is suffering, so is the head. Because the whole body suffers together. So he's saying that if one person, a Christian, is being persecuted, then the rest of the body and the head are also suffering. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, he says, We are pressured in every way, okay, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. This is the song that we sang earlier. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Did you skip some? I don't know what happened. What's going on with the computer? This is the song that we sang at the end. All right? It comes straight out of Scripture. All right? These things happen to us, but they don't destroy us. Okay? Because who is our strength? Jesus is our strength. Now, I don't know how much you know about the, the first Christians and, and the Roman Empire and what a Colosseum is, but what they used to do is they would take these Christians, okay, and as, as part of how they tortured them or persecuted them, they would put them in the Colosseum. They would use them for fun, okay? So you go to the, the arena, okay? You go to Amway Arena. You go watch a ball game, right? Well, okay, it's not a ball game this time that they're going to come watch, okay? Maybe it's a circus. They do that too. Uh, no, today what the entertainment is, is it's going to be Christian Joe and the Lion. Place your bets. Who's going to win? How would you like to be Christian Joe? You're about to get your guts ripped out by a lion. This was the norm. This is what happened frequently. <clears throat> Genarius was martyred with by first being thrown to wild beasts in the arena, and when the animals would not attack him, he was beheaded. Justina was a devout Christian and had taken vows of chastity. She was ordered to go to the Roman temple in Minerva to worship the Roman goddess, and after her virginity as sacrifice, if she was to renounce Christianity, she refused and was stabbed to death with a sword. Lucy was another devout Christian, so <clears throat> she too was persecuted. I could go on and on. I have page after page of all of these people who were persecuted this way, who were thrown in the Colosseum, who were tortured, who were burnt on fire. Think about Polycarp, okay? Polycarp was a man. At an old age, Polycarp was arrested. <clears throat> he was surrounded by the multitude of bloodthirsty voices shouting, Away with the atheists! Threatened with the rage of the wild beasts and urged to renounce Christ, Polycarp boldly stated before all of his enemies, he says, 86 years have I served Christ. He never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Upon refusing to renounce Christ and swear by the fortunes of Caesar, he was sent, immediately sentenced to be burned at the stake. While the flames encompassed his body, he prayed this. O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels and powers, and of every creature, the whole race of the righteous who live before you, I give you thanks that you have counted me worthy of this day and this hour, that I should have a part in the number of your martyrs and in the cup of your Christ to the resurrection of eternal life, both of soul and body, through the incorruption by the Holy Ghost. He thought it was an honor, an honor to be burned at the stake for Christ. 
Well, let's just be honest. Are, are we anywhere near that? Thank you for the persecution. <clears throat> we talked about all the people who were tortured or persecuted for their faith, we would be here for years. It wasn't only the Colosseum. Elmo was tortured by having his intestines wound onto a winch, and then finally he was beheaded. Basically, that means they slowly pulled his intestines out of him. <clears throat> Euphemia was tortured on the wheel, but still refused to renounce her faith. She was sentenced to death in the arena, where she died of wounds inflicted by the wild animals who attacked her. George was a Roman soldier and rose to the rank of tribune in the Roman army. He then converted to Christianity. He confessed his faith and was sentenced to torture, followed by death by beheading. It could go on and on. As you can see from the slide on the screen, that wasn't only 2,000 years ago. Today, each month, there are approximately 322 Christians killed for their faith. That means approximately 10 plus a day. 214 churches and Christian properties are destroyed every month around the world, and 772 forms of violence are committed against Christians each month around the world. This is not something from 2,000 or 4,000 years ago. This is something continuing today. A month or two ago, you learned that there is still approximately 27 million slaves in the world, and so we fight justice on that front. Today, I'm hoping to help some of you understand, maybe for the first time, that Christians are still routinely and regularly killed for only one reason. They did not steal a loaf of bread. They did not kill somebody. They are killed simply because they are a slave of Jesus Christ. And like Polycarp, they refuse to renounce their allegiance to Jesus Christ. This continues month after month. You can see in the next slide, persecution around the world. Where it is heaviest, the top ten are over here. 
Number one is North Korea. Number two is Somalia. Then Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Sudan, Iran, Pakistan, and a couple more are listed on there. Inside the magazine that is on your table, which every single one of you, I have enough, you should all be able to take one home. In the middle of this magazine is the updated map that will show you all the persecuted countries. This magazine is from Voice of the Martyrs. It's free to take one. There's probably a, a form inside of it that you can fill out and get a free subscription. There's also a couple of um, cards like this on your table. That if you fill them out, um, you can give them to me if you want. I'll mail them in for you if you're afraid you're going to lose them. You can get a free subscription to the magazine. It comes once a month. What I want you to do now is I want you to watch this video of a modern-day woman and her family who were serving Jesus in Afghanistan. And this is her story of what happened. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in him I will trust. We received this calling from the Lord, that the Lord has got a purpose for us as a family, to live out our love for him, our love for the Africans, to serve and here we are. God, take our lives and make with us whatever you find pleasant and, and good in your purpose. So it was a normal day for us. And Vanna just went to the office and he was teaching that morning. Actually, that was the routine every day. And for the children, if they didn't have a weekend or didn't interact with their friends, they were doing school. Both of them have got a deep walk with the Lord, and there's this hunger for the Lord that's very precious. And they are growing, they are growing in their faith day by day. And it's wonderful to be their mom and experience how they are growing um, and living their lives for the Lord in a place like Afghanistan. The most wonderful thing that a parent can do for his child is to bringing up in the Lord's way so that he knows who his creator is and that he can have a loving relationship with the Lord and live a life for that purpose. I've asked myself many times in the past, Lord, is this really where you want us? Because of all the difficulties, the challenges, we can lose our lives in time for the Lord. When I look at that in the spiritual realm, I know that he will not take us to a place like Afghanistan and just dump us there and he doesn't have a plan and a purpose for that. So I know 100% that we are in the right place, that we are obedient to the calling.
tell my children, um, John, Peter, and today, you will face a very difficult day today, um, and I'm not going to be there to help you, and Daddy is also not going to be there to help you, but Jesus is going to be there to help you through this, and He will be there. He promised never to leave us, not forsake. I believe they are in front of the Lord's throne, worshiping Him, praising Him, glorifying Him. And that they are just waiting for me to finish the race as well. Hebrews 13, 3 says, Remember the prisoners as if you were chained with them. When one part of the body suffers, do you feel it? Do you hear their cries? hear their calls for help the book of Exodus tells us that God heard his people's cries for help they were enslaved to the Pharaoh and he sent Moses to rescue and redeem them when one part of the body suffers the rest of the body suffers What are we willing to do about it? ISIS is only one group that continues today to pillage and plunder and attack Christians. They're not the only one. There's evil and injustice all around the world. These people are not killed for disobedience. 
to civil laws and society. It's not because they stole. It's not because they're thieves. Rather, it's because they followed Jesus. You put the persecution around the world map back up and just leave it. Our challenge this morning from James is that we would first and foremost surrender ourselves, that we'd be a slave of Christ. And secondly, that we would count it as joy when trials and tribulations come our way. This mom lost her husband and her two kids in service to Jesus. It is easy and a quick response to ask why, and I'm sure she has asked that as well, and that is fine. But God doesn't owe us an answer, and God's plans are much larger than us and what we understand. But what you did hear her say is that her faith is still in Jesus. She believes that God specifically brought them to Afghanistan to be part of his plan and to reach people for Jesus there. International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church is simply one day in the year where great awareness is attempted in the church. For me, it's been about 20 years since I was first exposed to this through Richard Wormbrand's book, Tortured for Christ, and he founded Voice of the Martyrs, the magazine on your table. The question is, what are you going to do about it? No, you can't go to every country, or at least not at once. I guess you could do the race, go to 11 of them. The first thing that every one of us can do is pray. Your prayers go where you cannot go. That's something that you got to decide whether or not you believe. But if you believe that, your prayers can go where you cannot go. The second thing we can do is we can send money to support the people and the organizations that are there. Voice of the Martyrs, Open Doors, International Christian Concern, Barnabas. There's many of them. In fact, on the back of your... Notes, handout, your sermon outline page today. On the back of it is uh, half a dozen or more organizations that all deal um, with keeping an eye out and helping the persecuted Christians around the world. Any of those organizations are, are worthy of investigation and support. I've supported several of them for going on 20 years. Um, and lastly, you ask God, what else is he calling you to do? Maybe someone in this room God is going to send to another country. Maybe someone in this room God will send to a dangerous place. I had, um, I've looked into some of these countries, and uh, at some point I would like to go there. I don't know for how long, but, and I don't know when. Anyway. That is our challenge for today. I am going to um, pray, and then we'll move to our table talk time, which will also be a little bit different today. Father, we come to you this morning. We come to you in thanksgiving that you are God, the king of the universe, 
and you bring us salvation through Jesus Christ. We thank you for how large your family is. I thank you, Father, that one day, when we are fully in your kingdom, I will be able to meet my brothers and sisters that I have never met, that have served you so much more faithfully than I have that have given their lives in the service of the King. God, I pray for all those around the world today who are incarcerated for your namesake, that you would encourage them and strengthen them, that you would be their hope today. I pray for those who have lost loved ones, whatever country they might be in, that you would encourage those families, that you would reveal yourself to them, that you would strengthen them. I pray, God, that you would use your servants all around the globe to bring the good news of Jesus Christ. And that good news would begin to infiltrate these other ideologies, these other organizations, and they would begin to crumble as people give their lives to Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, the life of these servants was not in vain, but instead, it is what continues to grow your church. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.